when we left off last week, we were seeing horrible persecution the Jews were enduring under the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It's about 166 BCE. The forced Hellenization that began under high priest Jason is continuing even more aggressively under his successor, Menelaus. The Samaritan temple at Mount Gerasim has been renamed Zeus, the friend of strangers, and Zerubbabel's temple at Jerusalem has been renamed the Temple of Zeus. The Jewish resistance is led by Judas Maccabees, um, a name meaning the hammer. Judas is one of five sons of a local priest named Mattathias. Their ancestral name is Hasmon, so they are often called the Hasmoneans. As we pick up the story today, the elderly Mattathias is on his deathbed. He calls his sons to him and names Simon as head of the family and Judas, who has proven himself a brave warrior, as leader of the army of the resistance. After their father's death, Judas and his brothers do all that their father exhorted them to do. Judas becomes the leader and warrior of great renown. And it's a particularly scary time to be fighting a guerrilla war against the Seleucid king. According to Britannica.com, Antiochus IV has just demonstrated his great military might in a grand review of his army near the Seleucid capital, Antioch. In this single parade are 46,000 infantry of his own, 20,000 fighters from Macedonia, 500 other mercenaries equipped as Romans, 8,500 cavalry, and 306 armored elephants, which are the equivalent of our modern-day tanks. Against this, Judas Maccabeus has about 6,000 fighting men. Those numbers will grow slightly, but the odds are always overwhelmingly against Judas and his men. Antiochus IV sends an army of 22,000 headed by a man named Apollonius. Well, Apollonius waits until the Sabbath before ordering his men to parade at arms. All the people gather to watch the parade, and then Apollonius orders his soldiers to turn and slaughter them. He plunders the city and burns it that Sabbath. He then refortifies the citadel and uses it as a base for continuing attacks on the people. But Judas Maccabeus and his men meet the forces of Apollonius in battle outside the citadel, and the Maccabees are able to defeat Apollonius. While clearing the battlefield of spoils, they find Apollonius's sword, and Judas uses it as his personal sword ever afterwards. These sorts of battles continue for three years. Judas's forces are always vastly outnumbered, but Judas constantly encourages his men, and always, always they beseech God for help before each battle. 
I want to point out here something that Marlene just mentioned to me, um, and that is that in 1 Maccabees, the name of God, Lord, do not appear. It is in 2 Maccabees that you have the theological commentary on the historical stuff happening in 1 Maccabees, and, and often the two, the two are, are different accounts of what's happening. Judas's continued success on the battlefield enrages Antiochus IV to the point that he's willing to spend whatever he has in his treasury to defeat the Jews. He gives his forces a year's pay in advance and orders them to stand at the ready. He draws down his funds so far that he is unable to keep up the largesse he's been throwing around the rest of his kingdom to keep it under control. Short of funds, Antiochus IV decides to make a foray into Persia. He leaves an official named Lysias as regent over his son, Antiochus V. He gives Lysias half his army and tells him to destroy Israel and just wipe all memory of it from the face of the earth. Lysias sends Nicanor, one of his chief officials, and Gorgias, an experienced general, along with an army of 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry to get the job done. Now here's a 3D map of the area around Jerusalem so you can see the terrain. The armies led by Nicanor and Gorgias encamp at Emmaus, a mere 20 miles from Jerusalem, where they're joined by slave traders and renegade Jews. When word reaches Judas and his people that a huge force is bearing down on them, many flee. But Judas Maccabeus and his warriors stand firm. He and his 6,000 fighting men gather at Mizpah, where they pray and fast and put on sackcloth and ashes. Then, in accordance with the law of Moses, Judas sends home anyone who has a new home, is engaged to be married, or is a newlywed, as well as anyone who is afraid. He does this even though they are hopelessly outnumbered. Then he does something else interesting. He splits his 6,000 men into four divisions. Judas leads one, and his brothers, Simon, Joseph, and Jonathan, each lead one of the others. Perhaps the plan is to attack the enemy in their camp at Emmaus by coming at them from all sides to throw them into maximum confusion and to give the impression of a much larger force. But General Gorgias, has a similar idea. He takes a select group of 5,000 troops and 1,000 cavalry and heads to Mizpah to attack Judas and his forces unawares. But when he arrives, of course he finds an empty camp because Judas and his men are over in Emmaus. So Gorgias and his men start searching for Judas. They figure they've run into the Judean hills. Meanwhile, Judas and his forces attack the remaining Seleucid army under Nicanor at Emmaus, making the help of God their watchword 
and despite being outnumbered nearly seven to one, they are able to kill 9,000 of Nicanor's troops and wound or disable most of the rest. After a long day of pursuit, Judas decides Nicanor is no longer an immediate threat and reminds his troops that General Gorgias is still somewhere behind them. And just as they turn around, they encounter General Gorgias and his detachment coming down out of the Judean hills. When Gorgias sees that the Seleucid camp at Emmaus has been overrun and sees Judas's army ready for battle, he turns and flees south to the land of the Philistines. Now, when Lysias hears what has happened, he cannot believe such a thing could befall his forces. The next year, Lysias sends a bigger force to do the job. This time, he sends 60,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry. Judas is once again outnumbered with only a force of 10,000 men, but he prays to God and asks God to fill the Seleucid troops with fear. And Judas and his men rout the army sent by Lysias. So Lysias goes back to Antioch to recruit an even larger army of mercenaries to take over. But for the moment, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers have driven the Seleucid army out. They are able to retake the temple while the remaining Seleucid soldiers hole up in the citadel. Judas and his men find the temple in shambles with its gates burned. They set to work fighting the soldiers in the citadel and cleaning up the sanctuary. Judas puts new priests in place. But when they start to repair the big altar used for burnt offerings, they run into a problem. The altar has been profaned. And Judas isn't quite sure what to do about that. In the end, they decide to tear it down and store the stones elsewhere until a prophet shows up to tell them what to do with the stones. And that as an aside, there's no indication of whether anyone ever shows up. Probably, probably not. Well, after they remove the desecrated stones, they built a new altar of natural unhewn stones in accordance with the law of Moses. Then they make new furnishings for the temple, a new lampstand, a new table of incense, and a new table of the bread of the presence. Then they hang new curtains and put the bread on the table. Here is where the story of Hanukkah happens. This isn't in the Maccabees anywhere. It's not in the Hebrew Bible or the Christian canon at all. This whole story is in the Jewish Talmud, which is a compendium of Jewish oral tradition. There are two parts to the Talmud. The first part is called the Mishnah, and it was written down around 220 common era, roughly 200 years after Christ, when Judaism was being reimagined by the rabbis after the fall of the temple. The second part of the Talmud is called the Gemara and was written over the next several hundred years, finishing up around 600 common era, something like that. 
In seminary, Rabbi Blubauf explained this to us by saying that the Mishnah is sort of like a blog and the Gemara is like the comments on each blog post. The Mishnah is very hard to understand. So the Gemara is generations of rabbis commenting on it and trying to figure out what it's saying. The story of Hanukkah, however, definitely existed as oral tradition very early on. According to Britannica.com, we have evidence of an argument about it in the first century common era, very shortly after the time of Christ. The argument is between two famous rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, about how many candles should be lit on each day of Hanukkah. But what I find really interesting is that even though the oral tradition isn't written down in the Talmud until 220 Common Era, Jews see it as having the weight and authority of Moses himself. It is considered as having been given to Moses on Mount Sinai, which makes the Talmud an important part of the Jewish canon. So the fact that Hanukkah is in the Talmud means it is a bona fide, albeit somewhat lesser festival. Hanukkah has a status more like Purim from the story of Esther than like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So back to the story. When Judas and his men clean up the temple and build a new altar and get everything ready, one of the most important things they do is to light the lampstand in the holy place. That's called the Ner Tamid, the eternal life that is to always burn before the Lord. You will find these in um, synagogues nowadays. But remember, everything in the temple has been profaned, including the oil. And they can only find enough untainted oil for one day. A messenger is immediately sent to get more oil. But surely the flame will burn out before he can return. Nevertheless, they rise early on the 25th day of Kislev in mid-December 164 BCE, four years to the day after the sanctuary had been profaned by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Holy sacrifices are made and Everyone celebrates this new festival Hanukkah in the manner that they celebrate the earlier fall festival of tabernacles, where everyone camps out together and celebrates for eight days. All the people fall prostrate and pray that never again would the Lord allow such a chastisement to fall on his people, but that he might have mercy on them, even when they need discipline. And miracle of miracles, the lampstand remains lit the entire eight days of the festival until the messenger returns with more holy oil. This is a great miracle, and they decide to observe these eight days of Hanukkah every year. When the Gentiles of the surrounding nations find out that the altar has been rebuilt and the temple rededicated, they are furious and begin to attack the Jews wherever they live. The text mentions the Edomites in particular. These are the descendants of Esau, and although we know their country by the Hebrew name Edom, 
The Greek name of their country is Idumea, and the Edomites will be referred to as Idumeans from now on. Judas and his men defend the Jews against the Idumeans and also against the Ammonites, who are led by a man named Timothy. But the attacks just keep coming. News rolls in of attacks on Gilead and Galilee. Attacks are coming from Port uh, Ptolemus, a port city, as well as Tyre and Sidon in Phoenicia. The situation is dire, but Judas and his brothers and their men fend off all the attacks. It's now late September 164 BCE. Lysias is still regent in Antioch, overseeing young Antiochus V. Lysias, in the name of Antiochus V, continues to bring armies against the Jews, but God strengthens Judas and his men, and they are able to repel every attack. It's now 163 BCE, and it's time to catch up with another bad actor, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He's the king who left Lysias in charge of his empire and his son, Antiochus V. Now, there are two different versions of this story in 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees, and I'm going to tell you the more colorful version in 2 Maccabees. According to 2 Maccabees, Antiochus IV is in Persia trying to collect as much silver and gold as possible to replenish his treasury. He enters a temple near Susa and sees that it is full of golden armor left there by Alexander the Great. He tries to take the city and its temple, but the people of Susa fight back. Then he receives word of his army's ignominious defeats at the hands of Judas Maccabeus. And to add insult to injury, he hears that the Jews have torn down the abomination he had erected on their altar. Antiochus IV orders his charioteer to drive his chariot straight to Jerusalem so he can make it a cemetery of the Jews. But while he is still speaking, God strikes him with a sharp pain in his bowels. Nevertheless, even in extreme pain, Antiochus IV urges his charioteer on. They go so fast that Antiochus IV is thrown from the chariot and breaks most of the bones in his body. He never recovers from his injuries. The author of 2 Maccabees says his body is covered with worms and his flesh rots away, giving off a terrible stench. The stench is so bad no one can come near him. And this finally gets his attention. On his deathbed, Antiochus IV begins to reflect on his many offenses towards God. He says, it is right to be subject to God. One who is mortal should not consider himself equal to God. And the vile man, the author says, made a vow to God who would no longer have pity on him and promised he would make Jerusalem free, the Jews could be citizens, he would restore the temple and its furnishings and supply all its needs, and he himself would become a Jew. Now that is clearly a very far-fetched story, pretty typical of 2 Maccabees. 
And I'm less interested in the quote historicity of the tale than I am in the theology the author is reflecting. Notice that in this author's view, Antiochus IV is beyond redemption, even if he repents. For this author, there is a limit to God's mercy. And th this was slipped in here so subtly, you might have missed it at first glance. But this is exactly the way bad theology works. Be on the lookout for bad theology, just kind of slipping in there as you navigate theological waters, especially in song lyrics. Sometimes the worst theology is set to the catchiest tunes. We'll talk more about this particular theology in our breakout groups. But what we do know for sure is that Antiochus IV Epiphanes, perpetrator of the abomination that causes desolation, dies ignominiously in Persia in 163 BCE. The end result is that on his deathbed, he appoints his friend Philip, who is there with him in Persia, to raise his seven-year-old son, Antiochus V, Eupater. And he confirms Lysias as regent over the entire Seleucid Empire. Remember old General Gorgias? Well, Lysias makes him governor over all of Qualisaria. Gorgias continues to fight the Maccabeans, and he's helped by the Idumeans. The Idumeans themselves are feeling pressure from the Arabian tribes east of them, so they've begun to move south around the Dead Sea and have begun settling in the southern parts of Judea, providing them with a base of attack. The Ammonites, under their leader Timothy, pressed the Maccabees hard from the east as well. Judas and his men put on sackcloth and ashes and appealed to God. And as the Ammonites attack, the Maccabee fighters see a vision of five gloriously dressed men on horses with golden bridles leading the Jewish forces. Two of these men protect Judas Maccabeus, and together, these heavenly beings and the Maccabean fighters kill 22,500 troops and 600 cavalry. Timothy, the Ammonite leader, is killed after a dramatic pursuit. You can probably guess this version of the story is in 2 Maccabees. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the enemy garrisoned at the citadel continues to wreak havoc on the Jews. So Judas decides enough is enough and gathers all the people to mount a siege against the citadel. Some of the soldiers from the garrison in the besieged citadel escape and go to Antioch to beseech the regent Lysias for help. At this point, Lysias decides to take matters into his own hands. He decides to force Jerusalem to become a Greek city no matter what it takes. Furthermore, he plans to put the high priesthood up for sale every year. Lysias, with young Antiochus V in tow, gathers a ginormous force of 100,000 infantry, 20,000 cavalry, and 32 elephants, and marches against the Jews. But Rather than marching straight down from the north, which hasn't worked well so far, 
they come around and up through Idumea in the south. The description of the elephants in 1 Maccabees 6 is fascinating. They feed the elephants grape juice and mulberry juice to excite them for battle. Then they space the 32 elephants out with a thousand foot soldiers and 500 cavalry around them. Each elephant has a covered wooden tower on top of it with four armed men in each tower and each elephant has an Indian driver. This vast army approaches Jerusalem. Judas Maccabeus calls all the people to prayer and supplication to God to send his angel to save Israel. Then, with Judas in the lead, the Maccabean fighters take up their arms and head out to meet the vast Seleucid army. When they are still near Jerusalem, a supernatural horseman appears at their head. He is in clothes of white and brandishes weapons of gold. And at the sight of him at their lead, the, the Maccabean fighters are greatly encouraged. Judas's brother Eliezer sees that one of the elephants is marked with royal armor, so he believes the king must be atop that elephant. He rushes into the middle of the phalanx of soldiers, fights his way to the belly of the elephant, and stabs it from underneath. The elephant collapses on him, killing him, but his death is in vain. The king is not killed. The Jews lose heart and begin to flee. The battle surrounds Jerusalem. Both sides build siege towers. Catapults are brought in to hurl fire and stones and arrows. But it is the seventh year, the Sabbath year, when no food is harvested. The storehouses are emptied and the Jews begin to run out of food. But God is with the Jews. The Maccabean fighters prevail. According to 2 Maccabees, the Seleucid army turns and flees, including Lysias himself. At this point, 1 and 2 Maccabees diverge in both their timelines and in the details of their stories. 2 Maccabees 12 has a completely different story about how Timothy of the Ammonites dies. And there are various skirmishes I'm skipping because they're not important to the overall storyline. The details are in the Maccabees chronology chart in the study guide if you want to go back and read those passages. So let's take a break here. In the breakout groups, I want to go back and think a little about the theological idea put forth by the writer of 2 Maccabees that someone can be so bad that God will not listen to their prayer of repentance. So turn your videos and your microphones back on. We'll stay together since we've got several people out this week for various things and pull out your study guide. Let's take a look at this. Um, it goes, you know, the setup is Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes on his deathbed. And he is clearly dying. He knows he's dying. He's suffering horrendously. And he starts bargaining with God. You know, I'll do this, 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 and this for the Jews. 
And he never, it never says that in the text, but clearly the implication is if you'll let me live, if you'll save my life, if I can continue to be king. Um, and the writer of Maccabees states flatly that God would have no pity on him. Um, so I want us to look at the questions first from the point of view of taking this deathbed confession as genuine. Let's assume Antiochus IV genuinely repents and talk about the concept of unforgivable sin. So let's just take it from our own context. If we had someone who had was a serial killer, committed vast war crimes like Antiochus IV has done, what would our own modern justice system do with him? What would justice look like in this case? Well, I don't, I don't think that he would be forgiven. I think the punishment for the crimes would still be demanded. And depending on the state, he either would be put to death or life imprisonment without parole. Right. I mean, we saw the Nuremberg trials, right? Or some of us are old enough to have seen the Nuremberg <laughs> trials. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we, our modern justice system demands an accounting, a payment, right? All right. So second question, what would ju justice look like if Antiochus IV was never caught? What if this war criminal in our modern times would, was never caught, was beyond the reach of our justice system? What would justice for this person look like in the hands of God? These are ideas. What are you, this doesn't have, this isn't a right or wrong answer. So we can throw out ideas here. Well, if we're still looking at it, um, are we now looking at it from the period in which Antiochus IV lived or if Antiochus IV existed today? Because there are horrible criminals that are never caught and live out their lives. Okay. Here. Yeah. So he might live out his life in peace in, you know, Paraguay or somewhere, right? Argentina. <laughs> right. Bad people do end up escaping and living out their lives, you know, in peace. What does that mean? There is never justice. What, what would what would we think? And Donna says, in the eyes of God, no repentance, which was what he was taught. Taught. So, and she says, are you saying if he repented or if he didn't repent? So, so I'm yes. All this question is if he truly repented. We'll we'll get to if he didn't repent in a minute, but if he had truly repented, escaped our justice system, has justice been served? Well, he's not committing the crimes anymore. So at least there's that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
But wouldn't true repentance require that he make some kind of amends and publicly state, I now realize I did wrong and I'm going to now compensate the people, et cetera, et cetera. Because okay. repentance doesn't just mean I'm sorry. It means changing your path. And trying to make up for what you've done. Reparations then, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So that, uh, that, that addresses if he's living, right? Okay. What, what happens if, if he dies, having repented, not having made reparations? Okay. Which, which is, he just goes to purgatory for a long time. Well, you don't (laughs) speak to that little Catholic girl. (laughs) And what's the purpose of purgatory? It's um, it's um, cleansing. So it's it's like putting yourself through the fire, so that you can be cleansed of all of what's, I guess, wrong with you, so that you can be perfect when you go to be in the presence of God. Okay. And well, we've we've talked in past lessons about fire is purification and um, about misconceptions around hell. So if um, just speaking from where I have evolved to theologically, if hell, eternal hell is not biblical, but there does need to be some kind of cleansing away of all of that evil mm-hmm. um you know some form of purgatory like experience post-death would make sense even if the person on their deathbed in the middle of intense suffering said oh you know i'll do anything i'll even become a jew i'll you know <laughs> um, it uh it seems to me there still would be some, at least a, a very long conversation with God after death. <laughs> but I think your question was, if not on his deathbed, but if he truly repented, uh, lived out the rest of his life, I think you said without making reparations. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's where the purgatory comes in. Mm-hmm. But do you think a person would really not have any reparation at all? I mean, just making the choice not to do the horrible crimes that he did, I mean, that is some form of repentance. Um, Choosing every day to live differently, choosing to interact uh, in a kind and generous way, that is some sort of reparation. Uh, all right. So, and Donna says, um, punishment was looked to be separation from God. Um, um, and, and as for reparations, maybe it wasn't a choice to not do reparations, just not have the opportunity. You know, I, I find it easiest to think of um, Antiochus IV kind of in Hitler terms, because I can relate more to that. All right. 
Um, so, so what if, you know, Hitler had died truly repentant, um, had not made reparations, you know, either by choice or didn't have time to or whatever, what is God going to do with somebody like that? Well, I don't think we're ever going to know. I mean, we can guess, but I just, I mean, is that's one of those things that you find out when you go to heaven. <laughs> I guess that's one of those things that I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about because it doesn't do anything to make me um, a better person to second guess what God is going to do about this. Um, it's certainly not going to have me be closer to God to second guess him, not going to mean, make me feel like I'm a better person than other people, because I think I know what God does. I remember having a conversation with, with one of my pastors about this very thing and about Hitler um, a few years ago. And I said, you know, there, there is this need for a feeling of justice. On, on our part when someone is this awful. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so how do we reconcile that if we don't believe in the kind of hell that I was raised believing in? And he said um, that, he said, uh, you know, like Julie, we don't know for sure, but he said his feeling was that um, there would be a period in which the person um, had to face their wrongs after death and had to really look at them in the light of God's light. And even if they still were in rebellion, he said, God's love is eternal and relentless. And that his belief was that eventually even Hitler would be restored to the presence of God. Woody, you had something to say? Well, this is all very interesting. I mean, I have trouble uh, trying to figure out the after-death part, but the before-death part, Hitler uh, repents, genuinely repents on his deathbed, uh, you know, an hour before he dies. Is he, does God forgive him? And I think an argument, a good argument can be made that, that God would forgive him. Or did mm -hmm. um, that? That I don't know. That I can't carry it on beyond that. It's just that you know, God's uh, God's more about uh, forgiveness than punishment. Yes. Okay. So let's 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 draw this back to the attributes of God, which is what Woody is doing here. All right. It 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 is. God is more about forgiveness and mercy than about punishment. God hadn't been about punishment. All right. And death, I think in our understanding of what that is, is being in the presence of God as Christians. That's what we believe happens is at death. We are in the presence of God. All right. Um, and, and so uh, everything that we know about 
um, God's justice. What I'm trying to what I'm trying to contrast here is justice the way God does it, and justice the way we're conditioned in culture to think of it. Okay, so let's talk about um, uh, justice for the victims. We've been talking about the Hitler side of it. Hitler repents. Okay, we don't know what happens after that. What about justice for the victims? And their families who are also victims. How does that happen? Well, actually, it didn't really end our justice system in the world. I mean, it really didn't happen for them. Right. I mean, there were, they were kept in concentration camps for years after the war ended. Um, they were denied many opportunities. They had such a hard time just even, you know, carving out a part of Palestine to, to be their homeland. And, and that just set off all sorts of other wars. I mean, they haven't gotten their any kind and, of retribution at all. And, and if you're talking about the, or if you could talk about the, the Jews who were actually murdered, mm-hmm. you know, how, how tortured and murdered. How is it possible for, for to have justice for them? Exactly. Yeah, it seems like like there have been attempts at some form of justice for them, but probably it will never feel like enough. I mean, Germany has, has um, as a nation, has repented. Um, and there have been some reparations and there has been effort to restore stolen art and things like that to Jewish families. But, you know, decades after the war and um, there have been, you know, hunting down the other Nazi bad actors and trying to bring them to justice. But probably none of it is ever going to feel adequate given the horrendous nature of the atrocities that were committed. If you were the mother or father of someone who was tortured and killed, none of this sounds like justice. But again, that's all human justice. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. But it's real. But I mean, there is a sense that is embedded in us that justice needs to happen. It's part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. It's part of the human spirit. And I think it comes from God. I I think that um, in, in uh, abused victims, one of the things that helps them get beyond abuse is to have something that they consider to be justice um, attempted or given to them, whether it be an apology, whether it be the death penalty, whether it be, you know, just um, an opportunity to tell the person, you know, the hor- how horrible they were. I mean, something, something has to happen for that victim for them to actually go beyond and begin to heal. Or they yeah. victimize themselves constantly. 
Well, and, and the Jewish people are still being victimized. In fact, we're seeing a rise again in this country of anti-Semitic behavior and all of the stuff going on in the Middle East. I mean, they still are a besieged people. Mm-hmm. That has not yet been resolved. Mm-hmm. So when we, when in our um, modern society, there um, is a movement, a justice movement uh, called restorative justice, where, which has been hugely successful in Brazil and in other places where, where like Julie was talking about, the people impacted by the crime come together voluntarily and listen to each other in a facilitated circle, you know, with the goal towards number one, like Julia saying, the victims being able to express the hurt that has been done, you know, to communicate exactly how much they have been wounded by this and by the loss of their loved one or whatever has happened. And also giving the perpetrator voice as well. And through this facilitated interaction, coming up with um, what justice looks like, you know, how, how can reparations be made? What does justice look like? Where is, where can, where can there be forgiveness? You know, just, it's just walking through that path. So that seems to me to be a very healthy model grounded in mercy, but also addressing justice for the victims, you know? And so I'm wondering if when we allow God into the mix and allow God to be the facilitator, what kind of power enters in at that point? And and I see life as a continuum, our life now continuing after death with God. Okay, I just see this as like Jesus saw it as the kingdom of heaven, heaven is now, you know, and ongoing. So if we have the victims and the perpetrator but now we have God as the mediator. What kind of things could happen? What kind of thing would happen for the perpetrator? What, what do you think God, God's mediation to the perpetrator would be focused on? You know, a really interesting model for what you're talking about, I think, might be uh, Desmond Tutu and the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Mm -hmm. that he headed after apartheid was ended. Mm -hmm. And um, as I recall, the the perpetrators were invited to come in and tell the truth, confess, basically. And if they did that, again, as I recall, they were forgiven. No, No punishment was meted out. But that sounds right, you know, and it's also similar to 
um, restorative justice under Dominic Barter, who is doing that kind of thing. But, and, and, and that's, this is where I'm trying to get to. Let's, by looking at these things, it seems to me that if we look as, at God as the mediator with the perpetrator, that what would happen for that perpetrator would be a full realization of the harm done. Right? That's what Marlene was expressing earlier. And that's what can never actually be achieved here on earth. I don't know if any of you all have ever received apologies from someone before, <laughs> but the apology is never quite enough. It's, it's like they didn't really get how much they hurt you. They said some wonderful words and you still have to go part of the way to forgive them, right? Because they weren't you. They could never possibly actually apologize to you in, in the shape of the hurt that you received. And you can never know it really what's, what's in their head. You can never really know how much they realize about their hurt that they caused and how much. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm just saying, let's take that and move that into the realm of the spirit, into the realm of God. And let God as the facilitator in this sense, let the person cause the person involved to actually know because God knows the fullness of the damage that was done. And what if God turns around and looks at the victim, the many victims of that hurt? And what if God is the one making reparations? Because you know that when we make reparations here in this world, it's never enough, right? We mm -hmm. never can make things exactly back like they were. We can't, especially if the lives are involved, right? Or time has passed. But what if God is able to make reparations for the actual victims and their loved ones who lost them and all the pain and all the suffering. Don't you think that's what those verses mean when God says, I capture your tears in a bottle and I will wipe your tears away? Don't you think that God has the ability to absolutely repair the, the root of that word reparation, redeem, transform, heal completely every single hurt to where from the victim's point of view, it is all okay. I think God has that power. I think God will do that. And I think God will face the perpetrator and they will see what they have done. And when Julie speaks of purgatory, 
what the words she used, she said, purgatory is a time of cleansing by fire. And afterwards you go into the presence of God, clean and whole. And I would submit that with God as our mediator, we simply enter into the presence of God and therefore stand in that fire, all of us. Already, all the time, just like we do now, just like we have that choice now to do. And that that perpetrator may come through that fire with nothing left to show for his life on earth, right? He's going to come through that fire. I think God has the power and intent to make it all right on both sides. In order to in order to accept that, don't you have to uh, essentially believe that, I mean, I guess this is part of Christian theology also, don't you have to believe that that really death is no big deal, it's just moving from one location to another, and the fact that this perpetrator killed my child, um, you know, my, uh, that even though I'm hurt, uh, that's that somehow, gosh, what am I trying to say? That my my child's existence somehow continues through his or her soul. I don't. I don't know. I, yes. It, you have yeah, to, that doesn't diminish the pain, though, of the loss here and the anger against the perpetrator. Yes. Because we're still hurting here. Yes. Even if we do believe that our child is with God, we're still hurting here, right. and we want justice here. And now God's justice is different and, and obviously has a much broader view. Um, but this sort of circles me back around to the deathbed confession of Antiochus IV, where in that time wasn't the general understanding was that justice occurred in this life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when the writer of although, Second Maccabees... Although it was shifting, as we saw, it, it had begun it was to starting, shift with it was, a, You could see yeah. that it shifted. So what he believed, I have no idea. Yeah, what I'm thinking is that the writer of Second Maccabees might have been saying God did not have pity on him in this life. The justice did not happen mm-hmm. Um from his perspective of the repentance and the promise to become a Jew and to restore everything to the Jewish people, that restoration did not happen in this life. Yeah, no. And, and therefore, this, this writer actually says that Antiochus will not share in the resurrection. Okay. Wouldn't that, would, or couldn't that mean that God saw into uh, his mind and saw that his deathbed repentance was not real, was not genuine. Exactly. And I think that what what I'm, you know, throwing out here kind of makes it a moot point, whether it was genuine or not. Right? That that ultimately what needs to happen is for that person to actually realize what they have done 
and that and that that in and of itself combined with being in the presence of God <laughs> is what repentance turning around you know means by definition but only God can know that right yeah absolutely and, and so if, but I think I think that somehow when we're all together there with God we kind of all know all of this together I don't think that this is done independently. I don't think God actually does it independently. And that's just my, my, my inferring from how wholeness happens here on earth, um, that it would happen um, similarly in heaven, that the spiritual reality of what happens is, yes, it is entirely possible for these to be completely separate, separated transactions. You know, somebody can be living far, far away and repent, right? And God can restore our hearts, we who are victims, even without having that other person involved. God is able to heal and transform us now, even without resolving the, the situation. But it's more, much more powerful here on earth, when all those pieces come together, right? When you can, can the victims can face the perpetrator, the perpetrator can receive forgiveness from the victims, whatever it takes, you know, to get to that point. I think God would do it the best way, <laughs> you know? I don't know that it's a separate transaction. I'm kind of thinking it's, done together in a sense, you know, and I'm just guessing based on what seems to be more powerful here on earth. It does seem like, you know, you hear these stories from time to time of um, victims or the families of victims having that opportunity to confront a condemned criminal at their sentencing hearing once they've been convicted. Um, And the stories that kind of stand out are people who speak to the the condemned person and say, you know, this is what your actions did to me, to my family, to my child. But my God wants me to forgive you. And in order for me to move on with my life, I'm forgiving you. Now, that doesn't exonerate the person from punishment by the state, but it does give closure to the victim or the family. Yes. If they are able to truly do that. And also it gives them a chance to speak their hurt to the perpetrator. Yeah. And that's sort of a, a, you know, what we have structured into our system today. Mm-hmm it might also be helpful to define exactly what forgiveness means. Um, As I understand it, I mean, forgiveness is not about, it's not, it's not saying what you did is okay. Right. Uh, Absolutely. it's It's about, it's more about saying about maintaining a relationship. But if, if you're talking about a perpetrator, you may not have you may not have had any relationship with that person, so um, I'm not sure what it means in that in that context. I, th- I think it's more about 
the fact that that what you're relinquishing on your part when you say I forgive you is I'm not going to let this this hate and this anger and this pain eat me alive from the inside out for the rest of my life. I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to let this color the rest of my life and how I deal with other people. I'm going to set this aside. And in a sense, you're saying I'm going to let God be God. Yeah. That I, I am, I have, in order to survive, I have to let justice remain in the hands of God. Trusting that God will make all things right. That's what justice and judgment, those concepts mean with relation to God, in relation to God, is setting it all right. So Donna had some things to say. Let's see what she has to say. It, Rhonda says it's very hard to forgive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because we want to pick up our baseball bats. Um, and Donna says forgiveness. Religious idea is giving it to Jesus and pray for them to find Jesus, which that's not what I'm saying at all, right? Know that all of these evangelical, et cetera, folks, where, which was where she was raised, that the only way to get to God is through Jesus. And we can only do that because Jesus' blood paid for it all. Separation between God and man at the fall through Adam and Eve, the direct connection is broken, um, which, you know, we've addressed some in, in class that, that God does not let that connection be broken and that God's going to be with us no matter what. And Rhonda says, you forgive, but not saying it is okay that they did what they did. Right. And that's mm-hmm. absolutely right. Because the, w- forgiveness is not sticking your head in the sand and saying there wasn't an injustice and that something doesn't need to be fixed. It does need to be put right. But I, I honestly believe based on God's character and on what we've learned all the way up to this point, that God can set things right, both with the perpetrator, with the victims, and between all. With the, with the, as far as the victims are concerned, this goes back to what Marlene said, that, that the, the, the fixing it for the victims would be being able to let go of the anger and the pain and move forward with, with love. Yes. And as you said, Woody, it requires that we understand life as a continuum with death as nothing more than a threshold. And that's what Christianity is about. That is exactly what Jesus death and then resurrection was about was that God is not going to let death be the end of it for any of us. That's, that's the point of being Christian. It's one of the points. There's many points, but that mm-hmm. it is a big point for understanding this whole idea of justice of the Odyssey. So All right, this is our last big theme.
theological discussion. Um, we have hit the biggest questions that there are. We will. We are prepared now to see what Jesus has to say about them and how Jesus transforms them. Next week, there is there is no. We've actually we'll run out of the end of Second Maccabees, and Second Maccabees was what was the theological commentary. Okay, and so we run out of theology even next week, and all we have left is history. So next week there will be no study guide. I will spend the entire class time just telling you the history, just telling you the story of what happens and how we get to where Jesus is. Now, this is going to be the story according to 1 Maccabees, which does not necessarily line quite up with what history actually did. I mean, it's around the fringes. It's generally correct, but it's their view of it. So I'm going to get you all the way up to the time of Christ next week, and we will stop end the apocrypha and take a big break until September 8th and then we will start the New Testament and we will start the New Testament by going back and doing a quick run through of what actually happened in history <laughs> to the Hasmonean dynasty and, um, and so I'm going to tell you the story a second way it won't be as long but it'll be a second way um, um, in September to set us up for the Gospels. And we will start with the life of Jesus as told in the Gospels. And then we will move forward from there. So next week will be our very last class until September. And no homework except, you know, reading the history if you want to. <laughs> <laughs>